nuclear warmongers. There's a trade show where those whose business is the promotion, manufacture, and proliferation of nuclear weapons party down for three days as they vie for visibility, influence, deals, and the pledge of billions of dollars in taxpayer money pouring into their pockets so they can further nuke the planet. But when one goes over the list of weapons-producing companies in attendance, and one comes across the name of a group you know is dedicated to nuclear disarmament, the initial question is, why is this here? Is this a typo? Stealth infiltration? Masochism? But then you talk to the person who's going to be in attendance and ask him, and he tells you. The U.S. government doesn't function as a democracy. On this subject, it functions through the clandestine activities of the contractors and their agents within the, who are burrowed into the government. In part, being at these conferences gives us information which we can parlay to others who in turn give us information. Well, when Greg Mello executive director of the Los Alamos study group, tells you why he's about to go into the belly of the beast, as well as the kinds of information he hopes to obtain there, you get a glimpse behind the curtain at the movers and shakers who continue to build and promote the insane, potentially life-ending technology that has created that awful, devastating seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Greg Mello. He is executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group, and he's about to attend the 15th annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, ironically being held over Valentine's Day weekend in Arlington, Virginia. He's been there before. They know he's coming again. So he'll be telling us all about what it is, who will be there, what he hopes to accomplish, and assure us that we do have friends hidden in high places. They just cannot necessarily make themselves known. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, and more honest nuclear information than George Santos has ever uttered or will ever utter in his life. All that coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Ukraine, where last Thursday, January 26th, the International Atomic Energy Agency reported eight powerful explosions near Ukraine's Russian-occupied Zaporizhia 6-reactor nuclear power plant. 
which renewed calls for a security zone around the facility. And now we learn that a year into the war in Ukraine, where clearly a nuclear power plant disaster has only been averted due to luck, one has to wonder, why is Ukraine ordering more nuclear reactors? Linda Penskunter of Beyond Nuclear has this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. A year ago, those of us involved in advocating against nuclear power began warning about the huge risks should Russia invade Ukraine, a country with 15 commercial nuclear reactors at four sites. In writing and on webinars, we described all the various scenarios that could lead to a nuclear meltdown or multiple meltdowns and a massive release of radiation, including loss of power, worker error, or an actual attack, whether accidental or deliberate. Now, a year later, with the invasion wreaking destruction and misery in Ukraine, the worst has not yet happened for one simple reason, luck. But luck has a bad habit of running out. The International Atomic Energy Agency's response has been to try to establish conflict-free zones around the nuclear power plant sites, and especially around Zaporizhia, the sixth reactor site now in territory occupied and unofficially annexed by Russia. So far, however, this has not happened. The agency's chief, Rafael Grossi, has expressed the view that everything would be fine if it were not for the war. He has to say this because the last thing the IAEA wants, given it's in the business of promoting the use of nuclear energy, is for the world to wake up to the reality that nuclear power is inherently dangerous. So the IAEA conclusion is that nuclear power is quite all right as long as the plants aren't in war zones. If they are, then all of a sudden, according to the IAEA, you are playing with fire. Of course, the problem is the reactors, whether there is a war or not, because loss of power, human error and sabotage can all happen at any time, anywhere and at any reactor. Invents in Ukraine have just brought these risks into sharper focus. And of course, it's almost impossible to predict where a war might break out. Nuclear power is in any case being sold to all sorts of unstable countries and regions, especially in the parts of the Middle East and Africa, but even to burgeoning totalitarian regimes in Europe. It's disingenuous to expect wars to be deliberately avoided just because nuclear power plants are present on the territory. Unfortunately, the government of Ukraine has either missed this memo or chosen to ignore the obvious nuclear risks. In the midst of a war where its 15 reactors, if they come to harm, could devastate much of Europe, Ukraine has decided that what it really needs is more nuclear reactors. Accordingly, it has brokered a deal with the US company Westinghouse for two new AP-1000 reactors, which it claims will cost $5 billion apiece and be online by 2030 to 32. That's all absurd, of course, as nowhere in Westinghouse's track record is the slightest indication that it will deliver an AP-1000 on time and within the original budget. And of course, the last thing Ukraine needs is to pour precious resources needed for rebuilding the country down a nuclear financial black hole. This hasn't stopped Westinghouse feverishly marking it itself all over the world, including to Wales. At a recent UK briefing for Welsh members of parliament, a Westinghouse representative actually bragged that the company was, quote, smashing production records all over the world. Westinghouse has definitely broken the law and the bank, but production records? Clearly, when it comes to nuclear power, the message from Ukraine is obvious. Nuclear power is too dangerous, not to mention unreliable, as an energy choice. The only way to be sure that nuclear power plants don't become embroiled in wars is to begin a rapid worldwide phase-out. 
then at least in this area we don't need to worry that our luck might run out. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. Here in U.S., the Washington, D.C. Circuit Court has denied and dismissed all parties and objections that have expressed opposition to the proposed consolidated so-called interim storage facility for nuclear waste promoted by interim storage partners to be located in Andrews County, Texas. Opposition has been raised by Beyond Nuclear, Don't Waste Michigan, and a six-group and one individual grassroots coalition, but the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit didn't want to hear them. The so-called low-level radioactive waste dump would store up to 40,000 metric tons of highly radioactive commercial irradiated nuclear fuel, and transport of these materials to the site alone represents a major impact on many states in the lower 48. We'll have a map that shows you what those transportation routes are. And a bit of hopeful news regarding the Diablo Canyon nuclear facility in California. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has refused Pacific Gas and Electric's request to resume a review of the nuclear plant operating license extension. That means they can't rely on their old license extension, which they withdrew from NRC consideration in 2018, and may force the closure of Unit 1 in the fall of 2024 and Unit 2 in the spring of 2025. Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out awake. In Australia, a major public health warning was issued on Friday after a radioactive capsule, is what they're calling it, apparently fell off a truck while in transit. Now that wording implies that the capsule is something large and fell off a truck means that, well, wasn't it in some kind of crate? But no. This tiny radioactive gauge is smaller than a penny. So what was it doing just hanging out by itself? The radiation it emits is roughly equivalent to someone receiving 10 x-rays in one hour if they're within three feet of it. And the long-term risks of being exposed to a source like this is cancer. And right now, it's sitting somewhere along Australia's Great Northern Highway over an 870-mile span. Needle in a haystack, anyone? And that's why not only the people who failed to provide proper containment, but the reporters who are failing to ask the right questions about this, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, follow the money. That's what the nuclear industry does. That's what they're going to be doing the weekend of February 13 through 15 at the Nuclear Deterrence Summit, following and securing the money so that they have all that they need for their propaganda, talking points, op-eds, talk show bookers, and all the tactics they use to brainwash politicians, reporters, and the public into giving them what they want whenever they want. That's money, money, and more money. And let's face it, For everything they put towards their propaganda, it's a terrific return on investment. Because whatever millions the nukesters spend on public relations work, they stand to get billions of dollars back from bailouts, subsidies, tax breaks, and hapless taxpayers who provide the money whether we want to or not. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. 
a weekly one-hour hit of honest nuclear information with the footnotes to prove it. We provide in-depth interviews with genuine experts, a roundup of international news, numbnuts of the week, bad puns, occasional bursts of musical theater. Hey, where else can you find all this in a weekly counterbalance to nuclear industry lies? But they've got a massive budget. We barely get by. We rely on donations from listeners like you. So if you appreciate what we're doing, the time to support us is right now. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. You can also set up a recurring donation as little as $5 a month. So if you value the different perspective on nuclear information you get every week from Nuclear Hot Seat, please do what you can now. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Greg Mello is executive director and a founder of the Los Alamos Study Group. He has led its various activities since 1992, including policy research, environmental analysis, congressional education and lobbying, community organizing, litigation, advertising, as well as the nuts and bolts of funding and running a small nonprofit. From time to time, he has served as a consulting analyst, writer, and spokesperson for other nuclear policy organizations. Greg was educated as a systems engineer with a broad scientific background and as a regional planner with emphases on environmental planning and regional economics, so he's got quite the background to do this work. In 1984, Greg led the first regulatory enforcement at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and that lab has kept him busy ever since. Here, we talk first about the Los Alamos study group, and then get to his upcoming trip to the Nuclear Deterrence Summit in Arlington, Virginia. That's a trade show for nuclear contractors and the boys who love them. I spoke with Greg Mello on January 27, 2023. Greg Mello, thanks so much for joining us this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby. What is the Los Alamos Study Group? We're a nuclear disarmament-oriented think tank lobby group that also does some local organizing. We're partly community-based and we're partly DC-based. So we realized recently that we're actually two organizations or one organization with two hands or something like that. You're one of the founders of the group back in 1989. Why did you find it necessary to step forward and create a group at that time? Because there was no pushback taking place against the nuclear weapons mission at Los Alamos or Sandia National Laboratories. We saw the end of the Cold War happening. And I thought, let's try to keep this from rolling back Let's see if we can move this boulder a little bit because it's been undermined by all the activism that, not mostly me, but I did. It was pretty active in the interfaith peace movement in the 80s. I had some technical skill that I thought would be applicable in the field. I was a consultant to Mary Leah Kelly in Livermore and... I met my friends, uh, Jackie Cabasso and Andy Lichterman and 
John Burroughs and Alice Slater working in the field. And it had annoyed me that there just hadn't been the pushback in New Mexico that there had been in California during the 80s. And I thought we could change that a bit. And so that's what you've been working to do. Yep. What kinds of work or issues has the Los Alamos study group been involved in through the years? And what have been some of your successes? In the immediate post-Gold War environment, the managers of the Department of Energy Defense Programs and Los Alamos National Laboratory were naive about how to deal with activism that looked at their management and their environmental compliance, which had been my previous career. I was the first inspector at Los Alamos National Laboratory. So I had this official job in the 80s where I was the enforcer, and it was fun to write a criminal notice of violation to the lab director and the local DOE manager. Um, since they lied to me, that's a criminal offense. So I was doing enforcement for the state before the study group. They weren't following the National Environmental Policy Act. Colleagues uh, at Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety capitalized on their failure to follow the Clean Air Act in a very successful litigation. They also joined us in the NEPA litigation, which shut down a large construction project at Los Alamos for a year and sent shockwaves through the Department of Energy and the Pentagon. This was to be a machine that would allow certification of new kinds of nuclear weapons uh, under a test ban treaty. We didn't stop it, but we slowed it down. And there were a string of other projects which were stopped because of sunlight, basically. There were journalists who were interested, you know, if you could show that a project had, a, say, a factor of five or 10 cost overrun, the details were often very juicy, like a plutonium storage facility where the plutonium had to be carried in through the offices because the building, the bays were made too small for the semis, so you couldn't open the doors. And maybe the, another problem with that facility was a natural gas-fired heater in the same space as the plutonium. And so once that's on CBS, which it was, then it's dead. Then the country as a whole or key members of Congress become aware of the incompetence that's involved. Under the Cold War, you see, there was no real accountability that if something went wrong, well, it was, you know, just chalk it up to experience and move forward, do another thing, cover it up, don't tell anybody. But in the post-Cold War environment, no one could get away with quite that level of incompetence and cover-up. So the, there was a plan for a big plutonium vault, uh, several plans for a new Rocky Flats plant at Los Alamos National Laboratory. That was the very first thing that happened in 1989. And it was, in a way, an impetus for becoming more seriously involved. We went to one meeting with the lab, and they gave us a copy of their open source uh, institutional plan. And then there it is, this giant plutonium facility, the largest project in the history of the lab, that was being put forward just after Rocky Flats got shut down. That died. I made a list of other plutonium facilities, pushed it across the table to Senator Bingaman and said, why are we building this here? Now, we don't even know what's happening with these other three or four. 
he said, hmm, good point. And in October of 1990, that building was cut from the budget because it cost too much and they needed to balance the budget and it wasn't really essential. What are the issues that are on the group's radar now? Probably the biggest one is that same one. It's come back. Every nuclear weapon has got a fissile core in the primary stage of the explosive. It's called a pit. They're made of plutonium and other things. And the United States has not had an operating factory to produce them since 1989. We and they themselves, and if you want, God, who put earthquake faults and lousy soil at Los Alamos Lab, have prevented them from moving forward with an actual factory that can make these. This is caused a panic among the managers of the nuclear warhead complex and the Pentagon and the Strategic Command. So they are pushing in a plan that was developed to neutralize political opposition in South Carolina as well as New Mexico to Rocky Flats plan. There was an Obama appointee who said, we can't use the old facilities at Los Alamos for this mission because it's going to last a long time. Their old facilities are too small. They have other missions and they're not reliable. So we're going to either have to build a new one at Los Alamos or modify the unused, recently unused, proposed MOX facility at the Savannah River site. The Obama appointee said, we're not going to tell you what to do, but this looks like the best one. And I'm going to forbid you from counting on that old facility at Los Alamos to be involved with pit production. The New Mexico delegation had a cow and said, we want pit production. And the new Trump appointee said, oh, we can solve this problem. Let's give everybody a pit factory. So there are now still, uh, this. the plan is for two. One small in an old facility, smaller. The virtue of it is it can come online relatively quickly, assuming it's possible at all. It won't meet modern safety standards. It's only 3,000 feet from people's houses. Well, it's only right next door to Native American Pueblo lands, their sacred area. There's earthquake faults, ashy, unconsolidated sediments underneath, but it can be done quickly. So the story is from the contractors at Los Alamos. Over in Savannah River, it's bigger, farther from the site boundary, but it can't really start producing until the mid-2030s. That makes the hawks in Congress very nervous. So the Trump administration sold Congress on the idea that by having two sites, they wouldn't fail this time. At least one of them would come through in some form. So that's the current plan. And Biden has kept it. So this has been one of the areas of focus of the Los Alamos study group. The reason that I contacted you now is that Patrick McNeil, who is one of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 and a former interviewee of Nuclear Hot Seat, stays in touch. And he sent me information that he had received on the 15th annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, which is taking place February 13 to 15 in Arlington, Virginia. 
Now, on the brochure, it is described as, quote, the premier event for nuclear deterrence decision makers to network, get high-level strategic updates from high-profile and expert speakers who are moving the industry forward, heaven help us, and connect with one another to create business for 2023 and beyond. In other words, these are the nuclear weapons people going, ooh, what can we do to spread our weapons and increase our market? And lo and behold, among the list of participating groups, which reads like a dishonor roll of nuclear weapons protagonist promoters, if not the entire industrial part of the military industrial complex, nestled among all those infamous names is the Los Alamos study group. How did this happen and why go there? That's a great intro. We have tried to go to most of them. It's not easy. It's not fun. Uh, it's work. I sometimes say to my wife, please don't send me there again. <laughs> the last two of these, I got COVID. So it's a, it's a good question. And the answer is, I learn things there, which are very helpful. So that's part of it. For example, I think we were really quite significant in defeating the proposed uh, pit factory in the 2010, 2011, 2012 timeframe. It was quite heartening at one of these conferences to find some of the most prestigious graybeards of the industry who were retired. Well, one of them was only temporarily re retired, and he went on to be a laboratory director after that, were also like us against this. And one of them, I don't think he was, he didn't know who I was at first. I have a badge, a name badge, but he didn't connect. And he said, oh my God, it's going to cost $150,000 per square foot. Um, well, he would have got that information from us around the horn. He said, that is the biggest waste of money I have ever seen. Well, it was really quite a joyful thing because he's so well-connected among the network of uh, nuclear weapons managers. And the, in the end, we were litigating this. We had three lawsuits against it. The Obama administration turned to STRATCOM. STRATCOM is the U.S. Strategic Command. They are the ones that have all the nuclear weapons. They are the big dogs in the military when it comes to nuclear weapons. And they joined us in opposition. Secretly, we never met with them. They wouldn't do that, but we influenced them. They read stuff we wrote and they came to the same conclusion that we did. And partly it was mediated through people who agreed with us, who had those connections, who were at the deterrence summit. So there's government people there, although there are fewer government people than they're used to, because as you could tell from the brochure, uh, it's getting more rah-rah. That's a quote from a, a government uh, individual who doesn't go anymore, who used to, but can't stand it anymore because it's all so one-sided and pro-industry. In looking at the list, I'm reminded of every seminar promotion I've ever seen that's trade show based where everybody is just saying, buy here, buy this. It's all great. You know, right. greatest things since sliced bread. Right. The sponsoring entity hires a convention event organizer. So that's why it looks like that in part is because. That's what it is. It is. It's a sales convention, a networking convention for nuclear weapons 
managers and there are many disgusting things that happen. There was a little video that an Air Force general showed of launching ICBMs and the room broke out in spontaneous war whoops when the ICBMs were launched. And I thought I was going to throw up. It sounds like genital projection to me. (laughs) So, um, but that said, uh, there are other people there who have a, what you might call a good government perspective. The civil servants who can function as the pivot or fulcrum on an issue. These are the people who can say, you know what, NNSA, that's the National Nuclear Security Administration that makes the warheads. Okay, that's a really stupid idea. And we like those people. You know, I was a government employee at the state and, you know, one relates well to the uh, civil servants who are just trying to find a way forward with what they believe to be good government policy in the midst of this show that is the politics of America today. We actually really like some of these people, and I've known them a long time. I mean, we can call them on the weekend. We can talk. So some congressional committee staff are sometimes there, and the things that one learns there makes it possible to talk to the professional staff that write the bills from a position of knowledge. You know, we have a point of view, but it doesn't mean very much if it doesn't, if it's not well informed, if we can't work in their world. So it it means more and provides a lot better entree if we can understand the problems that they face. And sometimes it feels like we are, well, a friend, a family friend is a forensic psychologist and He said, it's pastoral work you're doing. It's a ministry in a way. And we find ourselves sometimes linking people who are not allowed to link by their political parties or their orientation. So, you know, they say, well, what is so-and-so saying? I, you know, I can't really talk to them. And sometimes it's in the same party on either side of Capitol Mall. So... That's helpful to us when when we do that. And it's also helpful to hear, and here is really my advocacy hat on. Oh, I should say that being an advocate for disarmament hasn't really hurt us. Uh, People understand that. And as long as you're straightforward, that doesn't earn you demerits. So when you're there, in one sense, you're a ringer because you're not on the side of what they would assume you would be on the side of. And when they find out or when it dawns on them, do you tend to be welcome, treated as a curiosity, or is it like you've got anti-nuclear cooties? Oh, maybe some of all of those. I do play a role in the conference that I ask questions that make it more lively. And some of the questions are questions that the hosts would like to see asked, but none of the contractors want to do it because they have billions of dollars online. So there's a kind of a partnership between the NGO person, me, 
and the reporters, if there are any, which there are some, and the contractors don't want to look dumb and they don't want to reveal their problems successively because they have contracts on the line. I do tend to ask too many questions. I got cautioned. By whom for what? Oh, the one, the uh, conference hosting people's too many questions, too many questions. But if there's no other hands up, so what the heck? And there are skeptics there, you know, the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board will be there. The Government Accountability Office will be there. And they're not easily swayed by these sales jobs. And they enjoy a good tough question or two uh, that they don't have to ask. It's a it's a game. It's a serious game. And, you know, there are people who used to be, I mentioned, as I mentioned, graybeards who have sometimes a perspective that the new people need to hear. For example, one of them said a couple meetings back, you guys, and he, I'm hearing you boys, seem to assume that money is no matter how much money you need, it's going to be there. You need a plan B. You don't have a plan B. And that, of course, is what we want also, a plan B that doesn't involve so much money, that we want the nuclear weapons budget cut. We don't want an endless increase. So speaking of that, I wanted to tell a short story that the way that the most recent gigantic nuclear warhead budget occurred was through blackmail of Trump. It happened before an impeachment trial was going to take place at the Senate. Senator Inhofe and Liz Cheney and other people went to Trump and said, if you don't deliver this gigantic increase in nuclear weapons spending, we may begin to assume that you are in league with the Russians. And so you might not be able to count on our support. So you must override the Secretary of Energy and the Office of Management and Budget and provide an unprecedented huge increase in nuclear warhead spending for NSA. And we know this through White House staff, who we were talking to at the time, who were subsequently fired. But Trump said, turned to his staff and, uh, and said, I'm sorry, I have to do this. And But if I find out that that Lisa Gordon Hagerty is lying to me, I'm going to fire her. And so sure enough, he did. Three days after the election in November, he fired her. And she was put under surveillance from that moment to the rest of her tenure because by Dan Brilouet, the Secretary of Energy. Now, you learn these things, you know, the, the U.S. government doesn't function as a democracy. On this subject, it, it functions through the clandestine activities of the contractors more than and their agents within the who are burrowed into the government. In part, being at these conferences gives us information which we can parlay to others who in turn give us information. That brings up the image. Do you and those who are in alignment with at least doubt about how the nuclear establishment is moving forward, do you get together for little clandestine coffee clutches or drinks or, you know, go to a corner somewhere and say, look, I have to let you know this, but you can't attribute it to me? 
Sure. I mean, that's more or less the way everybody talks all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the general assumption is you can't attribute anything to anybody. And it's kind of a head scratcher to try to come up with something sane, more sane, less insane, in a, a situation where there's institutional interests that are cracking the whip to make it as insane as possible. It's icky. We are fortunate that we can go and come. But let's say you're a committee staff person and you cut the budget or something like that, you convince your principal members of Congress to cut the budget, you might come under attack personally with your one person saying, oh, you know, look, oh, she lied on her resume. You better fire her. Or you might get offered a plum. You could be made a vice president of one of these big companies. And if you have families and children, it might be difficult to tell your spouse that you're not going to double your salary and have a much easier job. That's happened. We've seen that happen a few times. As soon as somebody's really effective, then they get sucked in, they get sucked up. And then you have to start again with a brand new person. Let's do a little exercise here. There's a standard marketing tool in business called the elevator speech. So considering the nuclear deterrence summit, who is somebody you've always wanted to speak with who might be there, who you've never had the opportunity to talk with? Who would that person be? Hmm. Good question. Um, the new uh, Republican leadership of the House Armed Services Committee, I would normally never be able to talk to them, but suppose they were there. Suppose they were there. Now imagine you're at the Nuclear Defense Summit and you jump in an elevator and the doors close and the only other person in that elevator is this person. Mm -hmm. You've got 30 seconds, one-on-one, -on -one, to make some kind of an impression, any kind of an impression on him or her, most likely him, to get your message across and entice them into wanting to talk with you more. 30 seconds. What would you say? You know, the NNSA budget is unsustainable. You've got projects which are at the beginning. Uh, they're going to grow in cost. They have problems embedded that you haven't heard about. And by the time they are in mid-construction, uh, they're going to be costing more than you can afford. The Pentagon's going to put pressure on you. And you need to, to scrub these projects. In particular, You've got two pit factories running right now. The one at Los Alamos is, have you been told that it's been, uh, it's going to be delayed a year or two? Have you been told about the safety problems there that won't be resolved until 2027, 2028, if ever? Have you been told that they need to have a classified hack-proof Wi-Fi system to control the machinery? And no one's ever done that before. Have you, I mean, you've got problems looming that are going to derail uh, what you're trying to do. And basically, NNSA has bitten off too much program. Uh, and it's not even a matter of money anymore. They've got to shrink down and do what you would consider to be the most important things, they can't do everything. They've got more warhead projects running simultaneously at this point than they have ever had in 30 years. And they do not have the experience or the management or the money 
to or the facilities to bring these home. So it's going to, they're headed for a disaster. And I'm sorry to be the one to have to break this to you, but if no one's telling you this, you need to find someone who will. That's great. And as somebody who's been a business coach for the last 20 years, what I would suggest is find a place to cut that off because that was somewhere around two minutes and 30 seconds. That's an <laughs> awfully long elevator yeah. ride. But to get to the questions of, did you know about those things saying, I would be happy to sit down with you and talk with you further about this because what you don't know will come back and bite you someplace you don't want to be bit. What can we do to sit down and talk? Yes, that's a great, a great improvement. Thank you. Make it short because remember, 30 seconds. I'll send you that particular link and you'll be able to time it and then hone it down and prepare it. And people yes. in business... And this is for anybody who's listening to, because we've all got tons of information, but we tend to give too much of it at one time. Yes. Practice it. Practice it saying and always end with what's called a call to action in marketing, which is what do you want them to do? And you want them to say, yes, here's my secretary. Here's my assistant. Call, right. set something up. I want to talk with you. Right. That's what you want. All you want is the next step. Right. And I would wish that on you because you represent us so well. Thank you. But, so to shift this again, yes. on February 19 in Washington, D.C., there's going to be a Stop the War March and related anti-war activity elsewhere in the country. What are the natures of the demands there? And what kind of support do you have for them? And what, if anything, will be your involvement in them? What we're finding is that Ukraine and Russia become the excuse for every kind of nuclear excess that we could have. Well, and China. We heard around the grapevine that the U.S. Strategic Command assured people that there would be no cuts in the U.S. nuclear stockpile in the foreseeable future. That because China is expanding its arsenal, there are more targets to hit or deter, as they say. So what was possible under Obama, which was a one-third cut in nuclear weapons, but he didn't do it. He was afraid of being considered weak, and so he didn't sign the paper. It was put in front of him by the military. That's off the table now. And so what we find is that when you start talking about the future of a particular warhead or the budget or pit production, the word Ukraine keeps popping up. We must do everything we can blah, blah. It's gone beyond any kind of, it's always was beyond any kind of rationality, but it's even worse than it ever was. Now there's a report, NNSA no longer believes it's in a cost-constrained environment. They've dropped, officially dropped that. This is why one of our friends quit the White House. Why am I here? What am I doing? If we're not cost-constrained, you know, sky's the limit. So running through this, this entire issue, is the problem, the self-created problem of Russia. We've been following U.S.-Russian relations very closely because of this for a very long time now. So now we are at war, a kinetic war, with our stuff over there and our advisors. More every day, it seems. The Russians have a word for us after all of what George Bush did and first Clinton in the second administration, then George W. and 
The word is not agreement capable. The US government is structurally not capable of keeping agreements. And the distrust has now grown to Everest-like proportions. Under this environment, nuclear disarmament, which is our probably core organizational purpose, is, at least for now, off the table. So to get it back on the table, we need to have some kind of modus vivendi with Russia and China, however, moving in the opposite direction week by week. And we are now, I mean, a lot of serious people are wondering whether the end of this is actually nuclear war. There was just today a memorandum from the veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, who I like very much, Ray McGovern, Scott Ritter, Phil Giraldi, other people you will, names you will know, said, look, the, if our objective is defeat of Russia, this leads us toward nuclear war. And Scott Ritter, the other day, said, everybody should start saying goodbye to their relatives. It's a serious matter. And we have these, I mean, I don't have personally foreign policy experience, but I do have some experience in government. I think that Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan are incompetent. In addition to Ray McGovern says, and I agree that until they're gone, we're not going to be able to resolve this problem. Um, Longtime nuclear disarmament attorney, uh, Francis Boyle, looks to impeachment that this administration, the President Biden, has placed the entire existence of the United States at risk without even a declaration of war. Well, I agree with that. And by way of introduction, I would also say that in the process of killing projects at land, we have had some help from the, you might say, the libertarian right. Ron Paul's office helped us. The American Conservative Magazine helped us. They don't like this war and they don't like wasting money and they are all primed to see government waste. That's part of their you know, initial frame of reference. So what's happening on the 19th is a kind of left-right coalition where some of these right uh, libertarian anti-war people are joining with some former Bernie Sanders people and other people on the left to a call not one more penny for Ukraine. That's their catchphrase that they've come up with together. And we also had previously come up with that same, not those exact same words, but no more money for this. This is not something the United States should be investing in. It's dangerous five ways to seven ways to Sunday. So the demands of the demonstration are the Cardinal Four, not one more penny for war in Ukraine, negotiate peace, stop the war inflation. Let's translate that as changing government priorities to support the people rather than the military. And finally, disband NATO. We have never liked NATO after NATO's become a problem. We did work internationally for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and we were part of the effort to enact the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which brought us into contact with a lot of international NGOs. And NATO is um, a threatening organization and is now de facto at war with Russia.
And we have one congressional staff member who's no longer there call me on a Sunday night and said, don't you have contacts in Europe that could demand getting those U.S. nuclear weapons out of Europe and bring them back home? I could get the B-6112 funding cut if there was some kind of loud enough voice in Europe, especially in Germany. We could stop this bomb. And I said, well, we'll try, but we didn't succeed. So anyway, NATO's problem. You stated in a message to me, and I'm quoting here, we cannot avoid some kind of collapse but we can shape our collective experience of it. What do you mean by that? We've driven this industrial civilization and its impact on the planet far past the level of sustainability in terms of climate, of course, but also we are drawing on the very things that have caused the climate problem, fossil fuel resources, we are no longer able to just stick a straw on the ground and have oil come gushing up anymore. Now we must break the earth uh, over a fair radius. And these extraction methods, the problem of the gradual decline of quality of resources, both fossil fuels and mineral resources for metals and others, we have to put a lot of energy in to get energy out. All of our very inefficient economic structures are not set up for that. Basically, what used to be profit is now gradually being eaten away by the energy it takes to get the energy we need. It even takes energy to make a solar panel. It takes a lot of energy to make a nuclear power plant. And on top of our economy, we have erected this upside-down financial pyramid, which I do not understand well, but I do understand it's unstable. To quote, you know, the old Roman accent, what is that? Pacta sunt servanda. Contracts must be satisfied. The uh, debts must be paid, but they won't be. Not all of them. There's too many. So whose debts will be repaid? Who's going to end up in this game of musical chairs as the fossil fuels wind down and the environment is harmed? Who's going to be harmed? We need desperately to build out our safety net and build community resilience and strengthen our social contract. And in the process, we can rewire our own heads about what makes us happy. Is it going to be all the stuff? We're not going to have all the stuff. 1% of people might have all the stuff. Our industrial civilization that we have known, the prosperity that we've known, is not sustainable. So the notion that everybody's going to be living at the standard of living of the top 20% or 10% of the United States, that's not going to happen. So there's painful times ahead. At the same time as we are trying to keep ourselves from being incinerated in a thermonuclear war, we have a lot of work, which is very rewarding work, in community resilience, in doing the work, which has always been important, of helping those who can't do for themselves. For those people who wish to support this work, what do you suggest that they do? Where do they start? There's a thousand things, of course. Name three to five, no more. Act and speak in public against this war and the U.S. role in it. That's probably the most important thing to do for nuclear disarmament right now. For 
us in the Los Alamos study group, we are interested in young people and we are interested in talking and working with them. I could make a list of things which would be consequential to do and to research, little things to write up. If there are people who are in a gap year or recent college graduates or people who want to think about spending summer in New Mexico, we can help. I have a long list of policy ideas. The big question is, is this country going to go farther in the direction of militarism or are we going to pry resources away from the military and nuclear weapons budget and put them into our communities under local control in productive uses? We've got to invest in resilience in our own communities and not feed these weapons contractors. From your mouth to somebody's ears. And I know you will be attempting to do that. If people wanted to get in contact with you, see more about the group, where could they go? They could go to our website, lasg.org. First email, uh, g-m-e-l-l-o at lasg.org. The office phone is 505-265-1200. We will get that out and, of course, have links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. For now, Greg Mello, thank you for an extremely informative interview and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. You're very kind. That was Greg Mello, Executive Director for the Los Alamos Study Group. As he goes off to be in the belly of the beast, safe journey, swift return, and knock some sense into them. Considering all the support given to the promotion of nuclear weapons, now would be a perfect time for you to go to Don't Bank on the Bomb. They provide an easy action anyone can take to help remove the funding, the corporate, the institutional funding, from nuclear weapons producing companies. We will link to don'tbankonthebomb.com and the interview that we did about it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 606. And while you're there, look for the yellow opt-in box, and if you haven't already, sign up, because that's how you will get one email a week with a link to each week's episode and a brief summary of some of the material in the show. It's a great way to make certain that you never miss out on a single episode. Activists, activists, This Friday, February 3rd, as part of its First Friday series, the Samuel Lawrence Foundation is hosting a Zoom meeting with Edwin Lyman. He is Director of Nuclear Power Safety for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Lyman is an expert on nuclear proliferation, nuclear terrorism, and nuclear power safety and he will address Southern California Edison's seaside nuclear waste dump at San Onofre. Lyman argues that security at nuclear storage sites should be beefed up, and we concur. It will be at 11.30 in the morning, Pacific Standard Time, on February 3rd, that's this Friday, and we will have the link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 606. And if you're looking for a job, Tri-Valley Cares is hiring. CARES stands for Communities Against a Radioactive Environment, 
and the group is a leading nuclear weapons watchdog organization located in the San Francisco Bay Area, with a 40-year history of influencing U.S. policy at the local and national levels. If this mission aligns with your own, and you have strong, demonstrated skills in nonprofit management, fundraising, strategy, issue advocacy, and communication, they want you to apply. That will also be up on the website for this week's episode, number 606. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, thebulletin.org, Samuel Lawrence Foundation, aljazeera.com, reuters.com, japantimes.co.jp, huffpost.com, theguardian.com, thedailybeast.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it is so easy. Sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and ta-da! Every week, you'll get one email, just one, with a link and a short description of the show's content. That way, you never have to miss a single episode. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. If you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, and Nuclear Hot Seat which is now a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, no country has ever been held hostage to access to the sun. No country has ever been held hostage to access to the wind. They have not ever been weaponized, nor will they be. And oddly enough, that was said by U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. We should really remind her of this one. Well, that's it. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.